watchers in the fourth dimension. You take reality and you make it into a comic strip. Now, is it safe? Oh, I shouldn't think so for a moment. It's more than likely we may not be able to defeat this menace. And at London, in fact, the whole of England might be completely wiped out. Hello and welcome to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And I have a very quick temper and very long claws. This episode, we're finally back to contemporary-ish London, where an old foe is threatening the entire city with a fungus and yeti with web guns. It's the web of fear. The first item of note here is that this is finally the story where Peter Bryant takes over as producer on a full-time basis, having been groomed for the role for around a year. With that in mind, he'd been impressed with the great intelligence and the yeti in The Abominable Snowman. And three days before episode one of that serial was broadcast, he asked Mervyn Hazeman and Henry Lincoln to return to write a sequel. This story had originally been planned to close out the season, but issues with other scripts meant that it was pulled forward to be the fifth story of the season. Assigned as director was the legendary Douglas Camfield, who we had last seen handle the entirety of the Daleks master plan. Camfield is the closest thing that Classic Who ever had to an auteur director. His influence on the story can be felt throughout. In particular, he saw the potential in one character. In the script, he was called Colonel Lethbridge. Camfield saw him as being similar to the real-life Lieutenant Colonel Colin Campbell, Mad Mitch Mitchell, who had become a little bit of a celebrity following his leadership of the Argyle and Southern Highlanders Regiment during an uprising in Aden, which is modern-day Yemen. Camfield changed the character's name to Lethbridge Stewart, and after a couple of other unsuccessful attempts at casting, promoted Nicholas Courtney to the role, who had originally been due to play Captain Knight, and of course we had previously seen him in the Daleks Master Plan as Brett Vian. Camfield was also unimpressed with the design of the original Yeti, which he saw as being too cuddly and generally lacking menace. He instigated the redesign in order to make them look more menacing, with the new models sporting glowing eyes, long claws, and roars provided by the Radiophonic Workshop. Another item on Dougie Canfield's wish list was to fill much of the story in the tunnels of the London Underground itself. Unfortunately, London Transport wanted an absolutely excessive amount for the use of their property, about £200 an hour, which today works out to around £3,500 or $4,600 an hour, which I think in terms of filming budgets isn't actually that much for the modern day. They also indicated that filming hours would be limited to effectively the middle of the night. The decision was made to recreate the underground in the studio, and designer David Myerscough-Jones made sets that were so realistic that the BBC received a threatening letter from London Transport regarding unauthorised use of their property. Speaking of David Myerscough-Jones, this is his first time on the show, but we'll see him again when he provides design work for season 7's The Ambassadors of Death. In terms of music, we once again have stock music. With the ascension of Peter Bryant to the producer role, we also have a new story editor in the form of Derek Sherwin. Sherwin was actually a fairly interesting chap who has been an actor, a producer, and a writer. On screen, he had been in the 1958 TV version of The Invisible Man, as well as Danger Man and The Baron, and he'll even crop up in an uncredited role in season 7 of Doctor Who. As a writer, he will later go on to write for Doctor Who itself, but he also has credits on United, Paul Temple, and Emergency Ward 10. Finally, he will actually very briefly hold the role of producer for Doctor Who at the end of season 6 and the beginning of season 7. As a last note in our behind-the-scenes information, this is another story that suffered from missing episodes. Episode 1 actually survived with the BBC, and I remember seeing that one as a child, but episodes 
2, 4, 5, and 6 were rediscovered as a part of Phil Morris's 2012 haul from Joss in Nigeria, along with the previous serial, The Enemy of the World. Phil Morris is actually on record as saying that when he found the story, episode 3 was among the cans that he found, but on his return to the station a few days later, that particular can had disappeared, and Phil believes that because of its value as the first appearance of Lethbridge-Stewart, that it was actually swiped to order by a private collector, which seems to be why Phil Morris has become increasingly secretive about his work. We move on to our short summary, which is with Don this episode. Yeti have invaded the London Underground, like Yeti are known to do, and it's up to the TARDIS crew, with some help from a squad of military redshirts to stop them. Along the way, they must deal with creeping fungus, the press, and the knowledge that a traitor is amongst their mist. BBC One proudly presents John Carpenter's Chonkers 2 Underground Boogaloo. <laughs> I love that. Good job, Don. Thank you, sir. Episode one. I really love how this one picks up immediately from the end of The Enemy of the World. Agreed. I would argue it's some of the most exciting parts of episode one of this serial is just them finishing up Enemy of the World here at the very beginning. Jamie saves the day. Yes, obviously. That makes it the best. <laughs> but then after he saves the day, the doctor has a watch this moment and it doesn't end well. No. While we've got the TARDIS covered in cobwebs, suspended in space, we also flip to Earth and old Travers. I actually really like the old makeup on Jack Watling. I thought that looked really good. He convinced me as an older version of the same character. It actually took me a minute to realize that that's what he was doing, that it was a direct sequel with the same character. I thought that's actually very cool. I haven't seen them do anything like that before. Yeah, I, I mean, they haven't. Which makes it great. I mean, the closest yeah. we've had was the arc, which didn't quite have the same characters, but they went back to the same location halfway through the story, just in the future. Yeah, and I wasn't entirely sure that it was the same actor. I was like, I think it is. And I like double checked just to make sure because I thought they did a really good job. Yeah, that actual scene where he first shows up, where he's trying to get the robot Yeti back, I thought was filmed really well. It was very much a little mini horror movie. I love that so much. The setting, how that museum looked, it was very, very good set design. Originally, they wanted to film that in the National His the Natural History Museum in London. They were denied, so they just built it in the studio, which to your point, Riley, I think it looks great for a studio set. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Julius is hilarious. Silverstein? Yes, he's hilarious. It's wonderful. Again, it's that horror type filming and you always, you not always, but there is that stereotype of the kind of crazy museum guy who's just like, you just want it for money. No, you can't have it. I would like to nominate him plus one for the camp count. I think that's, yeah, I think I would okay. take that. Okay. And Travers' facial expressions in direct correlation to what Julius is saying is one of the most hilarious things I've ever seen. Like, just... <laughs> How he just delivered his face, I'm like, I think it was a little bit over the top for what they were trying to do in the scene, but it was amazing. Those facial close-ups of Travers and Silverstein, I thought was very kind of German expressionist. I thought that was really, really cool. Travers, with his paranoia about the Yeti and the fact he's reactivated a control sphere and it's gone missing, that kind of paranoia and tension really sets the tone for the rest of the story even though we changed sets from the museum to the underground i thought that was really cool only we could have just kept in the museum the entire time yeti in a museum yeah 
Yeah. I did think it was a strange creative choice to have the Yeti redesign being explicitly recognized on screen. I thought it was kind of funny. (laughs) But was it meant to be? It was a little bit funny, but it's also, they obviously look different. And I think it would have been a little weirder if they didn't comment on it. I mean, that's, I feel the same way about when they change the Cybermen out and no one ever notices, hey, they look different now. I liked it. And plus, it leads to a great character moment, but I don't want to dwell too much on it because it's in a different episode. One thing I do want to note is that I really enjoyed the placement of music. Yes. I do know that, you know, obviously it's it's stock music and we'll get to some other ones later. I made notes on a few episodes, but I thought it was really well done. I agree. Throughout the story, they used some of the same stock music that they had used in The Enemy of the World and the Moon Base and the Tomb of the Cybermen, and it still worked even though it was recognisable. The placement was phenomenal. By the time our TARDIS crew get there in, into London, it's an interesting situation that they're more or less trapped in the London Underground for the entirety of the story. But we get that little bit where they start heading towards the exit and it's obviously barricaded up and there's that old guy outside covered in webs. I thought that was a wonderful little bit of horror. At least no one bothered to dump his body in the river because that's forbidden. <laughs> Indeed. What's been interesting is I've got a friend back home who's been working in central London through all of this COVID situation. He's been texting me talking about how empty London is. I'm kind of imagining it's looking like this story in some way, just deserted, maybe some old dude outside a train station covered in webs. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) We also get a call out about, funny, isn't it? We keep landing on your earth. The doctor finally admitting that, yeah, I tend to stick around earth a lot of the time. Kind of a lampshading moment, too, because the past few stories have all been on Earth. Mm -hmm. The last story that wasn't on Earth was all the way back in the Macra Terror. Wow. wow. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, this is the sixth story in a row on Earth. We also get one of my favorite Second Doctor lines so far, where I think it's Victoria asks, is it safe? And he says, oh, I shouldn't think so for a moment. That was just (laughs) delightful. When we start seeing the soldiers that are laying down the cable, we start getting what I see as the predominant vibe of the story. There's a feeling of claustrophobia, a lot of nervousness. We've already seen the paranoia. We get Jamie and Victoria also very jumpy with Victoria screaming out when she touches a cobweb. That feeling of claustrophobia to me permeates this story. Again, it's one of those vibes along with the paranoia from the museum that really just sets the tone. That's really smart and done really, really well. I completely agree. And I think one of the ways that they do that so well is they don't go out of their way to explain what's going on right away. Mm-hmm. You get little hints like like the, the body in the webs. You get the newspaper that says, you know, Londoners flee, menace spreads. But, you know, something bad has happened and it's still happening. But you don't know what it is. Obviously, we've seen the scene in the museum. So there's the assumption it's probably something to do with the intelligence and the Yeti. But what are they up to and why? Yeah. And also, speaking of which, Yeti carrying web guns? It makes no sense. I mean, it it looks cool. I had a comment of, is this what the other plan was from the Abominable Snowman? But then I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. What kind of a plan doesn't involve Robot (laughs) Yeti? Let's talk about the moment of misogyny. Oh my goodness. So I'll just go with the comment because I wrote it down is what is a girl like you doing in a job like this? <laughs> I love her response though. Oh, she it's beautiful. I always wanted to learn science. So guess what I did? I learned science. 
Thank you. That's just brilliant. (laughs) It's brilliant. Speaking of Anne, I kept going back and forth about Anne. I went back and forth as to whether or not I liked her. And I went back and forth as to whether or not she was like a bad guy. For some reason, I was wanting to point at her for that. And it's just because her relationship with, with her father just seemed off to me so i was just like oh, something's something's gone wrong but i think it was just more of a she just didn't understand his kind of ramblings more than anything else but that was just my initial response with Anne is i just didn't know where to stand with her that makes sense but they did that with a lot of characters where you you basically suspected everyone that they could be in league with a great intelligence i think that's part of the way they ramp up the tension i'm sure that riley will want to mention the thing oh don already alluded to it uh in his intro i did my plan was to beat you to the thing reference (laughs) (laughs) but yeah no one's really safe from suspicion it was interesting of how quickly my mind went to that though because it was even before it was known that there could be traitors in their midst i was already in the first episode like i don't know how i feel about Anne. that one just hit really quickly she's very cold yes which doesn't help you like her yeah the tension was heightened for me especially because i couldn't tell apart any of the military guys (laughs) even when the ridiculous welsh one shows up there was ensign lazy idiot and lieutenant two weeks until retirement (laughs) (laughs) i liked arnold arnold was like the one that i knew and we all know what happens with that we'll get there but he was the one well except i was sitting there i was like i just kept writing staff because i was like and i was like oh crap they're all staff oh shit but he was the one they (laughs) called staff took me a minute to to figure that out before we move into episode two because we're almost here i just want to say that victoria has a new outfit i don't like it nor do i what is it (laughs) i don't know it's not great. The new costumer has usually been on point for the past couple of episodes, but this one, not so much. Martin Bohr, what were you doing? Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I'm also very sad. But we do get to episode two where a reporter that I can only assume was Garth Marenghi's dad, with this poor microphone <laughs> technique, just shoving it in people's faces right there. <laughs> I, I mean, we had to go with the very stereotypical in-your-face news guy who's super obnoxious. Mm-hmm. Anthony, has that always been something, a disdain for journalists in England? I don't know. There's a lot of hints that this particular journalist was based off of David Frost. There's a moment that he's very condescending towards Anne for her red brick university education, of course, red brick being really the second generation of universities after Oxford and Cambridge. So there's that very snooty thing that David Frost was Cambridge educated. So there's that little hint. There's the glasses, the interview style. I think it's a very deliberate parody on the hot new journalist Mm. of the time. I'm not sure there's always been that condescending attitude towards them. I think this is just a very deliberate piece of satire on him. He has a Mm. surprisingly long entry on the TARDIS Wikia, in case you're interested. Really? Really? (laughs) Secondary media abounds. Of course it does. (laughs) How much of it is Big Finish versus novels? Uh, A lot of it's novels. I don't remember how much of it was Big Finish, but it's, uh, yeah. Big Finish with Mm -hmm. coming to you soon with the continuing adventures of Mr. Chorley. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Episode two is also when Patrick Troughton went off on his holidays for a week. I knew it. I figured that out. (sighs) Yep. So we get some good old Jamie Victoria in the military action. I love when they get captured, quote unquote, and they bring him in and Travers is about to meet them. Like, you have to. You have to remember this. And I was just like. Oh, he does. And they had a little moment. (laughs) And Victoria was the one who also figured it out. 
Yeah, I love that it was Victoria. And that the moment of realization for Jamie on what's going on is when he goes, Yeti? Did he say Yeti? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of a punch in the air moment when, you know, everything starts to click together and you get that recognition. I really loved it. I think Victoria was worried about the doctor not realizing he was on vacation. And Anne, I think it was, told her to make some tea to take her mind off things. Has that ever worked? (laughs) Has making tea ever taken anyone's mind off of anything? You underestimate what it's like to be British. That's true. Making tea is a very serious (laughs) endeavor. So it's not like the wet compress. This actually has some validity. Yes. Yeah, there's a process and you have to boil the water to a certain temperature. You can't have it overboiled. I'm writing the the big pop-up book of British medical tips and secrets. So that's definitely (laughs) got to go in there. Obviously. I love how Travis is like, uh, Victoria, explain it to Anne. Really? Just Is it just because she's a woman or just because you're like, I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to leave. It's because they just don't connect as parents and child. It's true. I suppose. It's interesting how as soon as Travis can vouch for the Doctor and Jamie and Victoria, it entirely changes the dynamic we're seeing. You've got where Arnold and co are very skeptical of the TARDIS crew, but as soon as Travis is like, well, I can vouch for these people, suddenly it's, okay, they're on our side, which gives them a way into the narrative. Yeah. Well, it kind of harkens back to typically we have the scenarios where they come in and they're they're not trusted. This is just an episode where we at least have one person who, who trusts them, whereas in on a lot of other serials, it takes, you know, a few more episodes to gain the trust. I think it adds to the tension that they're not trusted. I get why they change it and bring in psychic paper when we get to the 2000s so we can have a, a zippier story, but I kind of like the tension mm. it brings. It can just get frustrating because it seems similar over and over and over again that mm-hmm. it's, oh, they just don't trust them. Oh, they don't trust them. It's like they don't trust anybody who walks into their village or town or wherever they're at. This one makes more sense because it's military operations, so they're much they're going to be much more skeptical of anybody. So at least that part makes sense. If there was a better mix of sometimes you go in and they're not trusted and then other times go in and they are would probably be best. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the military, I love the military operation in this. We've only really seen it once before in the war machine. To me, it's a little bit of a throwback to that. I really like it. I think it's well done. I do think actually looking back at this whole thing, what I don't understand is why they chose their base of operation in the underground. If I were to have a base... It would not be in a place where you could be enclosed from all sides. (laughs) I would choose to maybe have the base be above ground, which, okay, maybe you have some windows and things where it's not, you know, you're not able to keep things out. But at least you can see things coming and you can go the other direction if they're if they're on top of you. I think it was a little a little ambiguously covered. Didn't they mention something about like an unpredictable mist? I may have misinterpreted. I thought they were actually going down there on purpose to stop the Yeti in there. I think they went down there to stop, but you could still have the base of operation be somewhere else. It just seems that to have all of your people and all of your ammo and all of that down in the underground just seems like a bad idea. 
I know why I mentioned it, and that's because I, I've got in my notes it was a bit of a callback. In the 50s, there was a toxic smog in London that killed 2,000 people, and that would have still very much been in living memory. So I, I thought that the mist that was referenced above ground was a very deliberate callback to that. I think it was called the London Particular. Well, thank you. That <laughs> makes that makes so much more sense. That sounds like a groovy 60s band. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> How about we talk about the interaction between Anne and the journalist? Oh my god, she is so <laughs> companion material at this time. <laughs> she told him things that he wanted to hear, but didn't tell him anything. Loved it. Oh, she's quite badass. Oh, so good. The journalist does have a lot of people kind of playing him like that, because that happens later on as well. Yes. It's a tough life being a journalist. Another thing this episode, I, I know I've already talked about the paranoia, but at one point Anne thinks the Doctor's the one controlling the Yeti. I also noticed at one point, you know, Travers has a dormant control sphere and some model Yeti, and based on how we know they were controlled in the Abominable Snowman, that throws some suspicion onto him. So it, it just keeps coming back to that theme of you don't know who you can trust in this. They do a great job. Even if we as the audience know it's not the Doc, they're establishing that someone is in league with these Yeti. And just by putting it out there and then you change and wondering, is it the doctor? Is it this guy that shows up later? Is it the annoying journalist? They really do keep that paranoia going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And certainly in Anne's thinking, the doctor was previously there when you encountered the Yeti and the Great Intelligence. He's here again now all of this is happening. There's a certain logic to that. Yeah. I can see where she's coming from. We obviously, as the audience, and being that the show is called Doctor Who, we know it's not him. But from their perspective, yeah, that makes sense. I was going to talk about the introduction of the Welsh soldier, or the driver, we should say. Evans. Evans. I really like the interaction between Jamie and Evans. It's not like I really want to see like a spin-off of Jamie and Evans like I would with Jamie and Kamel, but I think that they that was a really good pairing for a couple episodes. Well, you got Scotty and Welshy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And can I just make the obligatory comment that Evans has very Welsh teeth? <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Let me mark that off my list of things I knew would be referenced. We got the thing, we got Welsh teeth. You know it was coming. All right, so we start to see the fungus. Is that what we're calling it? Yeah, so there's, there's a fungus and a web. Yes. Are they the same? Are they different? Am I just... But I want to know what they used... For the effects, because every once in a while, I'm like, kind of looks like dish soap every once in a while. Sometimes I think there's dry ice thrown in there. Sometimes I think it's cellophane. I couldn't really quite get a handle on what they used for the fungus. It's the BBC foam machine. They have a foam? Yeah, this, this is the point where they're starting to really try and get that return in, on investment for the foam machine. We'll see a lot more of it next story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you just okay. wait till they discover bubble wrap. <laughs> we got about 10 years before that <laughs> yeah the the fungus is coming at jamie and evans from both sides cliffhanger and off to recon land we go i was really enjoying the first two episodes binging through them in the way that you're not supposed to watch old doctor who and then it got to the recon and i'm like oh damn it and i just i had to stop right then i just couldn't deal with it yeah 
Yeah, honestly, it's very unlikely. But Private Collector holding this episode, if you are listening to this show, please give it back. It would really make this story a lot more entertaining. It would flow a lot better. Please, pretty please. (laughs) Thank you. See what you've done to his diction. Please give it back. (laughs) Yes, it all fell apart. Damn you, sir. It belongs in a museum. Oh boy. All right. So what's the first thing that happens? Because I I think I skipped a few things because the first note I have is about a pyramid. I think that's the first thing that happens. Oh, Isn't there a Yeti okay. with a pyramid? Yeah. And Jamie has Evan shoot it and the shooting it doesn't do anything. Okay. I didn't miss anything. Nope. Great. Like the intelligence? Ugh. Okay. But he's really <laughs> sad that it didn't work because he's like, but the pyramid, breaking a pyramid worked before. Well, the great intelligence learned that, Jamie, and fixed it. Robot Yeti 2.0. Mark 2. Yes, the Mark 2. Eagle 20. Mark (laughs) 2. Anyway, Patrick Towton is back from vacay. Woo! We finally get the first appearance of Lethbridge Stewart. I kept referring to him as Colonel because I just wanted to shorten it. And then I think I looked at something up on IMDb. I'm like, oh man, but he doesn't become, he's not Colonel forever. Yeah, that promotion is coming. (laughs) My next question was, where are all these people coming from? Yeah, you get Evans, (laughs) then you get Lethbridge Stewart. Come on, like how, how do they just keep coming? Like, no, that's weird. Wasn't Evans Lethbridge Stewart's driver? Yes, and Lethbridge Stewart didn't even recognize yeah, him. Yeah, because he went ass. out of his way to go, remember I drove you? Like, yeah, uh, sure. Yeah, whatever, dude. Just <laughs> didn't care at all. Bit of a dick move. Yeah, but at the same time, I liked his competence because he, throughout the entirety of the whole serial, he remains competent. And that made me very happy. I was like, because so many times you'll have someone in that role who either slowly descends into madness or then lets everything fall apart, but, but not him. Also, if you don't know where his character is going eventually... By him not remembering Evans, you cast suspicion equally on both of them. Mm-hmm. This is true. And I still suspected him for a while. I suspected Evans, the Colonel, and I never really suspected Travers. I don't know why, but I never did. Because it would have seemed a little bit obvious if he had accidentally brought them back. It would have made sense, but at the same time, it would have felt a little bit cheap. Yeah, I agree with that. And we've already met Travis. We know previously he wasn't the bad guy. Just kind of a jerk. Yeah, that's the title of my autobiography. (laughs) We also get Chorley continuing to be an ass. You seem to forget I'm down here as a representative of the press. (laughs) Oh, bite me. Stop. Just just stop. But he gets his ass handed to him by Lethbridge Stewart. Dude, when you've had your ass handed to you by Anne and now Lethbridge Stewart, maybe it's time just to give up and go home. Agreed. There was also a mention about the post office tower. Oh, I missed that. Yeah. Yeah, because they were talking about where it's like someplace that's really high so that could get a helicopter. And it was mentioned that the post office tower was right by where they were. Which makes sense. They were at Gooch Street, which is right by the post office tower in real life. Yeah. Totally makes sense. I somehow completely missed that. Photon. Very cool. A parallel that I liked was Jamie wandering around in the tunnels like he wandered around in the mines in the Macro Terror. Apparently they just like Jamie wandering around in the dark by himself. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? 
I hadn't picked up on that parallel, but now you mention it, Julie, I really like that. That's really smart. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things is that, so they had Victoria doing it for a little while and she was like kind of scared and terrified and not doing so well. But Jamie is just like, yep, I got this. I don't need a gun. I don't need a weapon, but I'm just going to do my thing. So I think it's his his competence and, and his confidence that he can handle whatever gets thrown at him. Yeah. The other thing with this episode, and I know we've previously slated the way Doctor Who does expo dumps, but we get the briefing, Mm. which I think might be the best expo dump we've had to date, because from a narrative perspective, it makes a lot more sense. But you also get the fact that we have essentially a slideshow presentation in an episode that essentially is a slideshow (laughs) presentation. (laughs) Layers upon layers. And we again get someone else. This was truly when the colonel handles Chorley. And he's like, oh yeah, everyone needs to go through you so that we can have one person who's the center of communication. And then immediately he, he's like, yeah, don't tell Chorley. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. And he just kind of bullies him into it. He'd like to do that, wouldn't you? Of course you would. And just doesn't even give him a chance to respond. <laughs> Diplomacy. Mm. This is the episode where we get the Doctor's really cool plan with the trolley and the explosive. Oh, the one that works so well? Well, it's not his fault. That's true. Those damn Yeti. But it was a good plan. It was, but the Yeti are just one step ahead, almost like there's a traitor somewhere. Does anyone think that this episode would have been a bit more interesting if the Great Intelligence had a different type of henchman other than the Yeti? Yes. That's what I kept thinking when I was watching it. I was I was thinking about, you know, the great intelligence as a foe, as an antagonist is quite good. But the Yeti outside of the Himalayas just doesn't seem to work well. And also, since we know everything about them and how they tick and their weaknesses, it kind of removes a lot of threat. What's interesting about this is when John Pertwee is cast as the Doctor, this is the story he keeps referring back to. He talks about how you have something like the Yeti in a situation like this where you wouldn't expect them. And he talks about there's nothing more scary than coming home and finding a Yeti on your loo in Tooting Beck. <laughs> and that's something John Pertwee like, said time and time again from like 1970 to when he died in 1996. I don't know if it's scary, but it it opens up so many questions. What am I doing in Tooting Back? Why is a robot using my toilet? Why are robots using toilets? And also, John Pertwee's Doctor never encounters the Yeti. The point is, the fact they don't quite fit in the situation makes it even more perturbing than it would be otherwise. I think it would have benefited from being in the next season. I think it was too close to the first episode that they were introduced. Even if it had been two stories later and had been the end of the season, I think it would have worked better as it was originally meant to be. Mm-hmm. Well, don't worry. We've got a good long wait before they show up again, or at least till the great intelligence does. Yeah, we do. I want to talk about Evans for a second. Is he meant to be comedy relief? Is he meant to be the absolute worst or... All the above. Yes. I believe the answer is yes. He's comic relief. He's suspicious because he just sort of pops in and out whenever he wants to. He's also kind of sad, like when he tries to hide behind the display screen, not knowing his legs are there. <laughs> yeah. He's like the worst soldier. <laughs> like... <laughs> 
oh, he's not a soldier, see, he's a driver. <laughs> I don't think he'd be a very good driver either. <laughs> no, probably not. But like, there's this moment here where he's like, I'm going to escape. And then he can't get out and tells them that he couldn't, he just couldn't leave everyone behind. And no, he was trapped. Like, stop trying to be a hero, dude. You suck. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. And so what we end this with the Yeti attack. Yeti attack. Yes. I, and this is where I realized the name of the soldier who just died, because this is the first time his name <laughs> appears in my notes, and that's Weems. You didn't notice Weems before? I found the name funny. No. So I it. <laughs> <laughs> Weems. So yes, we, poor Weems. He's dead. And Travers taken. That's a really good cliffhanger. It is. Mm -hmm. Episode four. A, the fact we're back in live action makes me so happy. Yes. And B, seeing the Yeti dragging off Travers is quite a sight. It really is. I must admit, yeah. even though, as Riley has wisely pointed out, they don't really fit in this story, I do like the redesign. Because one of the things I didn't like about the other Yeti was that I couldn't see where their eyes were. So it was just this yeah. big, weird, massive fur. This, they've got eyes, they move cool. I, I liked them. My only thought is that the eyes didn't fit. They looked like bird faces. <laughs> they do, like an owl? <laughs> yes. A little bit? And it just yeah. weirds me out. Every time I saw them, I'm like, you're a bird. You're not a Yeti. And <laughs> I think the <laughs> you're not even a real Yeti. I think the unfortunate thing about the design change with the eyes is that now when I saw it and saw a giant person in a big furry suit with giant eyes, I couldn't help but think they were a professional sports team mascot <laughs> walking around. <laughs> I, I kind of thought a Mothman. Yeah, man, maybe. Oh, okay. <laughs> They're going to be the new mascot for Tottenham. I'd go for it, the Tottenham Yetis. <laughs> They're less chunky than the original ones as well. But they still have some chonk. They do. Oh, much chonk. And did you see the little chess piece? Rubber toe replicas, aren't they the ones that make the fantastic replica props from the show? They are. They need to do what I would call the little chonkers chess pieces. <laughs> I would, I would definitely pick one of those up. One of the things I really love about this story is some of the little moments of comedy. Amongst all of the general claustrophobia and paranoia, you get these little nuggets. And there's the moment when the doctor asks for a box and Evan says, I've got my tobacco tin. And the doctor grabs it and Evan's just like, but it's got tobacco in it. <laughs> like... <laughs> Those little nuggets, I think, really help to break it up so it's not all tension. Mm -hmm. There's there's a little bit of something else there, and that works really well. Because they're human moments. They're not jokes or playing the entire thing for comedy. They're just the way people would interact. Exactly. Another element I really love in this story is when you get the Doctor approaching the fungus, the, the way that's shot, it's shot from within the fungus. And that looks really cool. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it finally presents to us, like, what is it like from the fungus's point of view? <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, because we've always wanted that. Now you see things from the villain's eyes. Yeah. One thing that I, I noted, I think it's around that time, maybe shortly after, is something off with Staff Arnold. Because again, I really liked Arnold from the beginning. And then all of a sudden in this episode, he's starting to like do a shift. And I was like, something's not right here. I know that it's really later when he gets turned, so to speak. But uh... is it though? Because we know from fairly early on that someone is in league with the intelligence or someone is in the thrall. At what point did Arnold get taken over? And I'm inclined to think it was sometime between the museum parts of episode one and when the TARDIS crew land. I think it was before we ever encountered him. Oh, okay. 
that brings up a really good point in why does the great intelligence then kill its own person or was he already dead and reanimated at this point i think he was already dead just the way that you know he said i am inhabiting this body i think whatever happened to him killed him and the great intelligence decided i will use this body as a vessel to get in here if that's the case, then good job for making me like Arnold for like three episodes before I started to even be suspicious of him. Yeah, I mean, he's a really great character. My next comment was, the colonel's too obvious. <laughs> like, it can't be him. <laughs> but it was. The major, because I'm trying to keep track of all these different people, says the doctor may be leading us into a trap. And then there's like that dramatic stinger. Not quite a whole music drop, but just like some musical noise. It's just like almost a dun-dun-dun moment, but except not. <laughs> Wait, who's the major? Are you talking about Knight, Captain? He was a captain? Sorry. I get all those confused. Sorry, Captain. Okay, I, that was yes. throwing me off. I was like, is there an entire character I've forgotten about? <laughs> Julie, you, you're doing better than me. Like I said, outside of Anne, <laughs> Lethbridge Stewart, and Chorley, and Travers, anyone that was in the TARDIS crew was just overly broad British military man, all right? <laughs> I swear, like, one of them would die, and I'd be like, how is he still alive? Oh, because it's a different one. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, yes, sorry. The captain says that the doctor might be leading them into a trap. Dramatic. Yeah. But still agrees to go up with the Doctor to street level. That is true. Mm -hmm. And then we have them doing a really stupid thing by not hiding the other Yeti chess pieces. Yeah, that was that was kind of dumb. You already had one stolen. You should have hidden the rest. Good job, guys. I thought you were going to mention the the webs and the trolley and the pulling the body out and all that thing. Because that was cool. I thought that was a superb bit of horror. Oh, yeah. One thing about this story, the BBC thought this was so scary that before the first episode was broadcast, Patrick Troughton filmed a special trailer where the Doctor spoke to the screen and told the kids that their parents might find this a little bit scary and that they really should watch it with their parents to make sure that the parents weren't too scared. That's adorable. I think it's fantastic. Does that exist anywhere? I think an audio recording of it might exist, but the video is sadly missing. But yeah, the, the plan of let's push the cart into the fungus when we know, kind of already know it kills on touch. Bit of a bizarre plan. They had masks on. Appropriate for 2020. And gloves. They were, they were trying. They had their PPE. Yeah. <laughs> we do get the fantastic fight scene towards the end of the episode, which is something Dougie Canfield always does really, really well. Oh yeah, that was awesome. The grenades and I've always wondered if they could actually shoot the, the control ball, if that would help, but they never do. Yeah. <laughs> Dougie Canfield was himself in the military, so it's not entirely surprising he knows how to choreograph a military action scene. I also really, really love when the Doctor and Knight, who are effectively looting, I want to add, when they encounter a couple of Yeti, the Doctor hits one of the Yeti because that's obviously going to do something before <laughs> running away. I think that scene is just so wonderful and so indicative of the second Doctor. It's great. Is this where we get the music from the moon base? Yes. Because I... Totally caught that. I was like, that's the moon base right there. But it worked. It still fit the scene. So I was okay with it. It was just really funny that I was like, oh, that's where it's from. Better than using the Dalek music again. <laughs> and of course, this is also where by the end of it, we only really have Lethbridge Stewart, Evans, the Dr. Jamie, Victoria, and Anne left. Everyone else has been either carried off by the intelligence or has been killed in the attack. That's pretty brutal. It's very true. It's real sad. 
You sound real sad. <laughs> Heartbroken. Wow. If you're so sad about about their loss of life, then Julie, name them. Uh, again, doing better than you. So Travers? Bursts in with a Yeti. Wide-eyed. And full of asthma. <laughs> hey, 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 there's fungus down there. Come on. <laughs> wow. All right, so that brings us into episode five. I like the dramatic entry. I like Travers being, you know, pulled back into the story here. All's going well. It's a good way to take episode five and set up some really high stakes, put our protagonists in the worst possible situation before we have a big rescue and climactic conflict at the end. Except they grab Victoria. And it's just that cliche, that, that beat gets hit again. And it was just kind of disappointing. Again. It totally should have been Jamie that was captured. I would have loved to have seen that. Him fighting the entire time and being like dragged and carried and like by the Yeti would have been so much fun. With the added effect of that, you would get to see a moment where you can see the doctor showing a lot of affection and wanting to like, you know, save Jamie. He's obviously very close with Jamie and we see that and we always talked about how great their interactions are. But we've never seen the doctor ever have to deal with the risk of losing him. Yeah, but we equally would have lost that glorious moment when Jamie, full of bravado, decides to go and rescue Victoria, opens the door, and the Yeti's <laughs> behind it and just roars at him. He goes, oh shit, and closes it again. <laughs> yeah, I, I, visually great. I was hoping for a, a great line there, but that was, that was funny. I mean, yeah, couldn't exactly go for oh shit. There was also a moment here where I mistakenly said, yep, yeah, Evans and Ann are totally the bad guys. I did not call it correctly. Every once in a while, there'd be like, not quite a break the fourth wall side shot, but there'd be these shots of Evans when everyone else is gone. And you're just like, this guy is just really not up to no good. But it's really just him just wanting to leave because a driver shouldn't be down in the underground. Not a bad guy, just a really bad soldier. But he's also the one who's like, hey, let's hand over the doctor if that's what the intelligence <laughs> yeah. wants. I'm like, dude, you kind of suck. It's always looking for the easy way out. Yeah. But he does eventually show some bravery in this episode as well, because he, he gets to that point where he holds Lethbridge, Stewart, and Jamie at gunpoint, thinking that one of them is in league with the intelligence. He's just all over the place as a character. Yeah. Yeah. Make up your mind. Do you want yeah. him to be a hero? Or do you just want him to be a coward who's running away? Yeah, my comment was just they're being heavy handed with Evans. They're trying to make yeah. it so obvious so that you don't expect who the actual bad guy is. And really, my my thought on this entire episode to really sum it up is that this is just a setup episode. That's all this mm -hmm. is. It's, it's putting yep. everyone in the correct place. Yeah, it does have some really nice character moments, though. Uh, let's talk about the Doctor and Anne working together. That was enjoyable. You know, we had our discussions earlier about how we felt about Anne. I don't think I made it as clear, but I really, really like her as a character. I think it's just, she's so subdued. And then except when she wants to get, you know, show a little bit of anger, a little bit of teeth, she'll show it and then she'll be subdued again. I just really like that in a character. Yeah. And I really like the way they work together. It's a very different relationship to that that the mm -hmm. Doctor um, has with either Jamie or Victoria. It's more of that kind of scientific equal that we'll see in a few seasons with the third Doctor and Liz. Yeah. And the Doctor, how he looks at Victoria and Jamie is kind of like uncle looking over a niece and nephew. Yeah. 
Whereas Anne comes across as more of an equal, a, a fellow scientist. Yes. I really Absolutely. like that. And it empowers Anne as well. We also get Staff Sergeant Arnold showing back up, apparently still alive, looking worse for wear, and just hiding out in the tunnels. Yeah. And I was like, yay, he's back. <laughs> I still liked Arnold. <laughs> this you is, didn't suspect him yet? I didn't. I don't know why. I just wanted to live my little bubble that Arnold just remained a good guy throughout the entire thing. And apparently he was bad in the entire thing. So good job, Julie. One thing I did find interesting was that the great intelligence was basically acknowledging the fact that they were not as intelligent as the doctor. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So at least now we know what the plan is, and that is to get the brains of the doctor because they're dumb. Because this was a trap the whole time. Yes. Absolutely not making it up as we went along. Just, just <laughs> seems a little odd. I mean, I guess it makes sense if you view it in terms of why he was using Yeti in the underground. The doctor would know what the Yeti were and that would attract him. Maybe I'm justifying after the fact here. I don't think there's justification here. I got nothing. I know it's already been alluded to, but when Lethbridge Stewart, Arnold, and Jamie return to the base, find Evans hiding behind the board, the colonel's tone. Oh my gosh. Evans, come out from behind that board. <laughs> Brilliant. Hi, oh, so good. So, so, so good. good. We end this episode with the fungus breaching into the base. Cliffhanger episode six. Oh, my first comment is Evans is kind of the worst. <laughs> I've got Evans being typically cowardly, so yes. <laughs> My next comment was, because um, that's when they're, uh, I think it was when Victoria and them were, were going into that one room, and you see like the guy's hand, and I was like, is that Chorley? It's gotta be him, right? Because we haven't seen him in a few episodes, so I totally called that. I had honestly forgotten that that was Chorley. <laughs> And I was like, oh, he's still around? <laughs> That's That was me the entire serial. People would disappear, and then you have shots of them wandering around in the subway. <laughs> they come back disheveled, and I'm having a hard enough time determining who's who. Who's who. <laughs> I'm like, it's just, it's a constant scene over and over of this. All of a sudden, I feel like I'm watching this, and there's just this British soldier that keeps showing up every episode that's been lost for a couple episodes. And when I saw Troy, I was like, oh, okay, no, I know him because he wears glasses and he's in a suit. <laughs> I know this guy. All right. And, I, and when they happened, I kept thinking like, oh, they brought him back. Okay. I thought he was just gone completely. <laughs> what is going on in the story? So just out of curiosity, Anthony, do you have to tell Riley who you are every time you guys meet up? Yeah, yeah. Every single time. <laughs> I, I suffer from uniform blindness. You put on like a military uniform, I can't tell one of you apart from the other. <laughs> we have everyone being captured except Staff Arnold gets away after we fake an injury. So, yay. Yeah. Except Boo, uh, come to find out. And then they're sitting around after being captured and we get the best part that I've ever seen. I know you and want to talk about this, Julie. <laughs> and it's the doctor playing the recorder and he plays the Sky Boat song. Oh. Known, known mostly to people of our generation as the theme from Outlander. Yes. So that was just really exciting because one, obviously a huge Outlander fan here, but also that it's a song about the Bonnie Prince trying to es escape from, from Scotland and him being able to do that. I found that an interesting choice. Yeah. When that happened, I was thinking, 
have I missed recognizing other tunes that the second doctor has played <laughs> and what have they been? And like, did they play into the stories they were in whatsoever? I just feel like he was just kind of like doodling away before he didn't really have a tune, but this was so recognizable that you, it definitely stuck out. But I don't think he has played anything else before. His rendition of Inagata De Vida brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think he's played like three blind mice, but I think this is the first adult song he's really played that's not mm-hmm. a nursery rhyme first adult song was three blind mice and he did baby shark <laughs> oh no oh, i look no, forward no, to no. his return in in the three doctors when he'll play a rendition of black sabbath's iron man <laughs> oh that'd be so good i know we kind of already briefly touched upon it but yes we we get Torley back and he's gone off the deep end i think i would Jamie was wandering around for quite a while in the tunnels, and he didn't go off the rails. No, but Jamie's also seen all this weird shit before. <laughs> I mean, he's seen the macro, and he's seen the faceless ones, and the Daleks, and the Cybermen, and, and poor Chorley. He's just, like, in, in the middle of all this nonsense. I mean, it's like Julie was saying, Jamie's got experience wandering dark, creepy <laughs> corridors. That's just what he does. Yeah. So really, I need to move into a house that has a whole bunch of dark corridors. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, I mean, if you if you want to bring Jamie to you, yes. Okay, great. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> Throw a couple Yeti in there and you're golden. The final scene, it all gets a little bit chaotic. When Jamie is starting to, to talk to the Yeti with the control device the doctor's built, he's like, Yeti, come towards me. It kind of reminds me of that first episode of the IT crowd where they tell tell the boss that they've installed voice recognition. He goes, hello, computer. Hello, computer. Hello, computer. It just keeps going. But it all gets a little chaotic at the end. The doctor has one plan. Jamie's got a different plan. It all goes a, a bit wild and turns out the doctor's going to have something to deal with in the future nine doctors later before we get to the final scene i wanted to point out something that really struck out to me i don't know if you know if anyone else knows this there was a film poster in the subway for a film called blockbusters uh-huh you uh-huh. see this starring sydney Poitier and rod steiger that really struck my mind because i was i thought like wait a minute i don't know of any movie called blockbusters car starring sydney Poitier and rod steiger but you know what movie they were in 1967 1968 in the heat of the night in the heat of the night exactly and I said, why? Though the poster looks familiar. So what's wrong with the title? And then it was the poster for In the Heat of the Night. And I said, well, maybe was it was In the Heat of the Night when it was released in England? Was it released as blockbusters? Because that doesn't really work. <laughs> no, for some reason, the, the set design used the In the Heat of the Night poster and just changed the title probably to blockbusters. A copy, probably a copyright thing. Yeah. But you would think the artwork of the poster by itself would be enough they, for a copyright. They were broadcasting it once on British TV in the late 1960s. Blockbusters yeah. was an old 1944 short film. Well, I say short. It was an hour. And I think it was a French film, maybe. So why would they replace the name with the title of another movie? Like I said, it was just yeah. really striking for me to see that and just piqued my interest. Yeah, I don't have an answer either. So, about them Yeti in the f- climactic scene. Where Jamie is the damsel in distress now? <laughs> we were just commenting on the fact that it was Victoria who got captured, but then now we have Jamie who's about to be choked by Yeti. Yep. I mean, some people are into that. <laughs> yes, it's true. And then we have the doctor 
The doctor employs what I know as a child of the 80s as the Superman 2 plan. (laughs) (laughs) He is somehow has tricked the intelligence by switching the mechanism. So then it seemed like he was to be the one to gain all of the great intelligence's intelligence. Oh, okay. I, I thought you meant he was throwing his chest symbol at him. I'm sorry. Completely misunderstood. Oh, God. Which would have been a giant W. <laughs> giant Doctor Who logo. <laughs> uh, the Moffat era logo coming to you 50 years early. I thought that was interesting. And just to see like, I don't think we've ever had that where we've had a celebratory moment after defeating our, our villain and the doctor is just still just kind of just upset about it. Yeah. He was so upset. Because they won the battle, but yes. they lost the war, essentially. Yeah, that's true. He also calls Evans a blithering Welsh imbecile. He's not wrong. <laughs> well, yes, that's... Why did you have to bring his nationality into it, dude? It's just a blithering imbecile. <laughs> Weren't you bringing his teeth into it earlier? Yeah, but I'm half Welsh. Uh, uh, yeah. He's allowed to do it. I know. Yeah. You've got Welsh friends. It's fine, I'm sure. <laughs> I also have Welsh teeth. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. And when all that happens, Chorley reverts back to being a very terrible reporter. And poor Anne has to deal with him. <laughs> uh, she was able to handle it before. She can do it again. So after what seems like the longest day ever where the Doctor and friends have to deal with the events of the enemy of the world, immediately followed by the events of this story, we actually finally get a comedy ending with, who knows, they might suddenly start trains again. Trains? Come on! <laughs> I, I think they were just I, trying to get away from staff smell because he did not look like he was in good shape at the end there. No, poor staff sergeant. <laughs> not so good. That brings us to the end of our story discussion. We move into the scores. And I know you hate this, Julie, but you're up first. There's actually quite a bit good about this. I think that the first two episodes do a really good job of setting the pace, setting the scene, and really not giving us enough information to solve and to figure out who's bad, but making it creepy and and things of that nature. The music is on point. There's a lot of good things that are happening. It does have its issues. I'm not going to lie. Chorley and Evans drew it back for me. They could be rather frustrating. Could have tightened it up maybe one less episode. But overall, I still, for the most part, enjoyed this. So I'm going to give it 7 Mark II Yeti out of 10. Riley. The first question you need to ask yourself when grading the serial is, are the Yetis interesting enough to do another serial featuring them? That answer is no. And that's even when you give them guns that shoot webs. What are the enjoyable things? The set design, I include the museum scenes like we discussed, as well as the subway, look great, look very real. The introduction of an iconic character with the Colonel and the character of Anne, who I really enjoyed. Outside of that, what we have is an old and fully explored monster in a less interesting setting than we had the last time. With a plot that seems to just constantly be people routinely getting lost in the subway, then found, and then lost again, and coming back. It just gets kind of tiresome. But at least the grand scheme of the Grand Intelligence made sense, unlike other villains like in the Faceless Ones. So I will give this five silly string guns out of ten. Done. I think the first question you need to ask in regard to this serial is, who's a chunky boy? (laughs) (laughs) Once you get past that, while I do feel that most of Riley's criticisms are valid, I don't feel that the the Yeti really work for this. It's not the monster I would have chosen for it. And at the same time, I don't care. 
because they weren't really the main threat. You had that encroaching fungus, you had the gas up top or fog or whatever it was they called it that kept them from getting out. But you also had a really taut thriller where at the same time you're always wondering, okay, who is working against them? You know, how is this going to play out? And it always kept me really engaged, especially right from the beginning with that great horror movie intro. Going to this, I had a feeling I was going to like it more than Riley did, but that's okay. <laughs> that's perfectly all right. I'm giving it eight web-covered corpses out of ten. Honestly, my view on this one is very similar to Don's. The Yeti feel very peripheral. It's almost like this had enough story for four episodes and they had to find a way to stretch it out to six, so they had to add another threat. I think that it sets a great tone of paranoia and claustrophobia throughout the entire story that just works. And it's one I really enjoyed. And I tend to think of this one and the enemy of the world together because they were recovered at the same time and they're immediately adjacent to each other in the history of the show. I've always felt that this was the, at least since they were returned, I felt that this was the inferior of the two. And I still think that, but this one has definitely gone up in my estimations with this rewatch. I'm with Don. This one gets eight incompetent Welsh drivers out of 10 from me. <laughs> which gives us a story average of 7 out of 10. We'll be back next time when the BBC become even more determined to get a good return on investment for their phone machine in Fury from the Deep. Thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippak, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Chonkers 2 Underground Boogaloo, was recorded on Wednesday the 13th of November 2020. In the meantime, all of our previous episodes are available on your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D, and you can also interact with us via email at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favourite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you didn't fully defeat that disembodied intelligence last time, it's probably best not to bring its robot servants back to a big city, even if you do think they're deactivated. <laughs>